Hey friends, welcome to Boca, a podcast exploring the ever-blurring lines between the personal and business lives of professional photographers. This is your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm happy that you can join me today in connecting with photographers and entrepreneurs as we discuss photography, business, and oh yeah, that sometimes messy thing that we call life. This podcast, it's brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. All right, Boca Podcast listeners, we are back for another episode. And uh, I'm actually joined by a brand new friend of mine, really, Ray Whitney. Thank you so much, Ray, for taking time to share with us and uh, hang out for me for a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nathan, for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Well, and we were chatting about this before we get get started. There is, I really do count it. I, I, I say this to our guests, and I know it probably sounds cliche and uh, maybe not doesn't carry a ton of meaning, but honestly, this is a privilege for me to get to actually hang out with photographers, fellow photographers, have conversations with them, get to know them a little bit, and then ultimately give you and our other guests an opportunity to share what you've learned with our community, because I think there is a lot of value in that. I know that growing up as a photographer, uh, I shot weddings for over 10 years. I, there was so much value in the relationships that I had with other photographers and learning from yes. them. And yes. And I think this is a really cool platform to share with others and, and uh, hopefully encourage them and help them along a little bit. So I appreciate you doing this. And, and to that point, let's actually just jump right in. And actually, before I ask you my, my main question, my first main question, um, I want to give our listeners a little bit of context. Whereabouts are you based and what type of photography does your business offer? Yes, absolutely. So I service the D.C., Maryland and Virginia area, as well as the South Texas area. So I newly expanded my business to South Texas, including okay. Houston and Austin and Dallas, but created my brand in the D.C. metropolitan area. Um, and I've been in business going on eight years now. So this is my fourth year full time. So I can't even believe like I, it's like year four, but so, so honored and such a blessing. So yeah, I'm kind of East Coast, down South, bi-coastal, which yeah. I think is awesome. Yeah. And I specialize in portraits and weddings for the chic and modern creative and couples. Okay. So first of all, major props to you for the eight years and even more props Thank to you, you for the clarity with which you just communicated your your brand position, which is something that I want to come back to here in a little bit, because I mean, that's that's a topic we hit on a lot in the podcast and I, I know that a lot of photographers have a hard time, first of all, understanding the concept of a brand position, but then secondly, communicating it really well. We'll come back to that here in just a little bit. Uh, but first of all, you're, you're, for our listeners who might be curious, I want to go ahead and share your Instagram. It's Ray, R-H-E-A, Whitney, just like it sounds, W-H-I-T-N-E-Y on Instagram. And uh, also mention your, your website, which is RayWhitney.com. And I have to throw out your, your education IG account to Photobomb Academy. How in the world did you end up with that cool handle? <laughs> I know it was so cool, right? And it's actually trademarked. So I'm like, it's really, really mine. But good for yeah, you. Photobomb, thank you so much. So Photobomb Academy, I created created that at the top of 2017 as an educational platform to inspire and teach um, creatives and rising pro photographers, business foundations and different tactics on um, improving their craft, improving shooting and just growing their business, growing this business that they dream about. So, yes, that Instagram handle is Photobomb Academy. 
And it's kind of a play on words, obviously. I want to help make your photos bomb. Yes. Um, (laughs) In the best way possible. (laughs) In the best way possible, in a way that is really true to you as the creative. So um, if you like, when you, if you know me and you follow me a little bit, you'll see that I like throw the word bomb out there all the time. (laughs) So it's just like part of my personality. And I was like trying to think of a really cool name. And I was like, you know what? Photo bomb. And I searched it, it was available, and I I went with it, and I love it. It really feels very true to my personality, and I just, you know, I'm very passionate about helping others and teaching and, you know, kind of just being um, a, a source of inspiration to others as they grow within photography or within the creative realm. So yeah, that's, that's how Photobomb was created. Cool. Well, we're going to link to that in the show notes too, along with your website and Ray Whitney, the Instagram account we mentioned earlier. We'll put all this in the show notes. For those of you listening in, Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com is where you can find the show notes for every episode right underneath the episode uh, or the the podcast player itself. um, You'll see these notes, detailed notes, resources that we'll discuss today. But I actually want to get your your take on this, Ray, because... You know, I've, I've noticed that the, the photo education thing has, I mean, it's, it's been a thing for a while where you see photographers who either are photographing or used to photograph, they get into education uh, in one form or another, whether they're offering online yeah. courses or doing workshops or otherwise. And it's hard not to, I mean, I've been in the industry for close to 20 years, so I've seen kind of trends come and go and see behavioral patterns of photographers. And and I yeah. see this and there's so many photographers getting into to so-called education. And I, I wonder about motivation, you know, because it's easy to, to follow a trend and try to make a quick buck. It's another thing to have an underlying motivation for that thing that you do, whether it's education or just being a photographer or otherwise, that right. comes from a deeper, more meaningful place. So what's the motivation for you in launching that education side of your brand? Oh, I love that question. So my motivation just really comes from being able to, it's like lifting as we climb, you know, and as I grew, so starting, I've always had a passion in photography since I was a little girl. And I just never knew, right, that this whole career, it could be a career of mine. I graduated from Howard University with a um, degree in business finance, and I've always had a camera. So long story short, I got introduced to a guy that teaches uh, photography in a studio in DC and, you know, told me about his class, which is like a six month course. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to take it. So I just kind of took a leap of faith and it, I opened up to this huge world of photography. And within that, he really, he and uh, the other instructors within the studio really poured into me um, as a creative, as a growing photographer, you know, learning how to use my camera, learning how to shoot a manual, learning how to manipulate light. And from there, it was just like one step and then another step and being introduced to other photographers and doing other mentor opportunities and things like that. And so along my whole journey, like I've really had a lot of people to pour into me, um, to see something inside of me that helped me cultivate um, to be the entrepreneur that I am today. And so I'm really inspired by being that for someone else for those that are those younger creatives, younger photographers that are wanting to tap into their passion, wanting to create a career within it, but really don't know, you know, they want to connect with someone. They want to know someone that's real, um, that's gone through the journey before. And so I'm inspired by that. It, you know, Photobomb literally was created just, I had people kind of connecting with me on Instagram 
saying, oh, I would love to, men- uh, you know, be mentored by you. I would love to, you know, assist you. Like how, can- you know, I really want to learn and grow. And, you know, in the beginning, it- it's such an honor. All of it is such an honor. It's very flattering, but it's also time consuming. And so I, you know, when you're when we're shooting every weekend or whatever, we have all of these things going on. Adding another level of mentorship and things like that is just a time commitment. And so I started off doing like one-on-ones, which was really great, kind of meeting my students, quote unquote, where they were at. So if they were trying to learn more about their camera settings, like foundational work, I met them there. Or if they were trying to grow a business and really trying to figure out what is branding and how do I go about, you know, using social media to get my my name out there, I met them there. And so it started off one-on-one, but as, you know, things, the demand kind of took off within actually shooting, I had to figure out ways that I can reach people digitally and um, still provide tips and tricks and things like that. And also still service my clients, which is so important. And so it's just been an ongoing journey. Um, I definitely think the motivation is just really lifting as I climb and pouring into others in the ways that um, it was poured into me. And I also know how vital education is as a growing entrepreneur, as a growing business owner, as a growing photographer. Like I would not be where I'm at today without great education, without Mm. great educators, without great opportunities to really define my style and to really hone in on my brand and, um, you know, just kind of open myself to new worlds at every turn. And so education is so, so important. And um, both of my parents are educators. My mother is a mathematician. My father is a historian. And they've been, you know, so I was born and raised in this house full of education. And so it's just natural in me. Um, I'm very much so a numbers girl in photography. The foundation of it, it surrounds around numbers a lot. And so I've just been told by mentees and other students that my ability to kind of teach them the foundational work in a very conceptual way really help them, you know, improve their images and and take their business up to the next level. So it's just been, you know, I'm motivated, I'm motivated by those people that want to learn from me, that open themselves up to me. And, you know, just being able to be like a pillar for someone else to look at and, and aspire to, you know, while still I'm aspiring to, you. I have people that I watch that I love, you know, and so it's just, you know, it's lifting as, as you climb. I think it's so important. And to be able to give back really, really like I am driven by that. Like I, I find so much pleasure in that and seeing people flourish in their own realm. So yeah, that's kind of my motivation behind photography education. I know it's like super popular right now for everyone to like be a quote unquote educator, which is fine. You know, if that's something that drives you, I just think it's also important to really be able to like really connect with people at where they are so they really can learn something and take those, you know, gems and jewels and, and make it their own within their own business. Well, first of all, there are a couple of words that come to mind as you're talking there. One is inspiration. You talk about the inspiration that you've received as a result of others who have poured into you, which is, is and, and then to very closely follow that up, there's appreciation for the effort that others have made to, to help you and you want to give back. And I, I love that mentality, that heart. Um, and of course, the, you also find inspiration in your parents. I love that both your parents are educators, and so you've you've learned from them as well. And, and you also mentioned something else that's really important, which is the the idea of 
being able to effectively explain concepts, you know, because one of the things that, yeah. that we could have a podcast, a photography podcast and talk about all kinds of really cool tools, whether it's camera gear or pieces of software or otherwise in order to be able to effectively run a business. But if we don't understand, don't understand, or for that matter, don't teach the base level principles, concepts that drive why it even matters to use those tools to begin with, or how to use those tools to begin with, then I, I don't think it's as effective a learning experience. So I, I, I really appreciate the fact that that is an emphasis for you and that that's a talent that, that you bring to the picture. Um, when you talk about inspiration, I, I think back to, especially when it comes to conversation, including conversation here on the podcast, one of the things that I want to do in conversation with others is to make them feel significant. And I, mm. I experienced this actually from two people in particular, one person who I unfortunately can't even remember the name of. I just, I remember having an experience when I was a young person, I traveled a lot with my family and I had the opportunity to, to meet this one person who engaged with me in conversation in a way that made me feel like, I actually mattered. What I said mattered. The fact that my I, that I existed even mattered because a lot of times you have conversation with people and they just kind of, you know, at surface level and they just kind of blow right over you and you know that they'll likely forget about you after they walk away. And, yeah. But I, I experienced this with this individual and I was like, wow, this is it just I felt so good. And then there was another person named Todd who I met later on who also engaged me in a very similar way. And so I, as a result, made an effort to, to bring, and I, I have a lot of work to do still on it, but to, to bring that kind of value and that, that feeling ultimately to conversation with individuals, whether it's on the podcast or just in person. And um, so I, I understand the idea of finding inspiration and personal experience and wanting to take what you've learned from that and give that value to somebody else. And, and I have a lot of respect for that. You know, you, again, you see all of these photographers who, as you point out, are, are calling themselves educators. And it's hard sometimes to distinguish between whether they want just some notoriety and they kind of play the cutesy part of, of an ed, so-called educator and a pretty brand. And, and then those who are actually truly focused on adding value. And I love that you have a deeper why behind why you even started that brand in, in the first place. And um, in fact, speaking of why, we're going to get to the why behind your photography here in just a second. But to that end, Absolutely. Your photography business's brand position, you stated it really, really clearly at the intro. Can you say that one more time for all of our listeners? Absolutely, yes. So I am a wedding and portrait photographer for the chic and modern creative and couple. So I have been kind of thinking about my about that tagline for a while and you know, really putting together the pieces on who I attract the most. And I do do a lot of branding portraits for creatives and photographers. And yeah, chic and modern, you know, very uh, kind of stylish, very forward with their business, within the creative, the branding portraits, and also within my couples, you know, really wanting, uh, I find a lot of my couples on Instagram. They are very digital um, people. They are also very, you know, successful people within their businesses and things like that. And again, the chic, stylish, modern underlying tone is what kind of follows all of my ideal clients. And so that has, that's kind of been my tagline that I've come up with and I'm really liking it. <laughs> well, again, I love the specificity of it. I love how concisely you're able to communicate it. And one of the things that, that your tagline, or I'll, I'll call it a brand position does, because it, I think it's more powerful even than a tagline. It, it truly positions your business in a particular place in your market, right? Because you could have another wedding yeah. photographer who is 
targeting skateboarders, or you could have a wedding photographer right, who is right. who is targeting um, wedding coordinators. I mean, you could you could be specific in in one way or another. The fact that you've narrowed down your target market by very specifically labeling them immediately set kind of creates this niche for you that that you're able to target more effectively. If you're yes. just a wedding photographer, well, there are you know literally what one point I want to say like one and a half million weddings to two million weddings, something like that in the U S just in the U S every year wow. and, yeah. and the thousands that go on around us. And, and so your marketing efforts become very broad and kind of vague. Whereas if you're going after a client who is chic and modern, of course you can target them based on their interests. And then if you're going after the creative that, that further narrows the field. And so I yes. love the specificity of that. And this is a great example for those of you listening in, when you you continue to listen to our conversations at the podcast about brand position, and I'm trying to, to, to continue to do a better job of clarifying the significance of this, this is a great example of a brand position, which very specifically narrows the target market in its statement and automatically yeah. filters out those who don't fit. And uh, that this is it's something to pay cl- very close attention to. And, and it does make your marketing efforts way easier when you know exactly who it is that you're going after, you're getting specific about it. So uh, again, those of you listening in, pay attention. This is a great example. Thanks for sharing that too, Ray. But uh, I want to go deeper than just that brand position. Let's talk about your why. And, and it's I can't think of a photographer, at least recently that I've seen, who specifically talks about their why and labels it that on their photography website. So if you don't mind, I just want to read this from the about section of your site. And it, okay. it very simply, it says, my why. There is no better joy than to freeze special moments in time and to allow my clients to relive the emotion and love they felt through an image as time moves on. Now, I I will say that some photographers will say something like that, uh, but that's kind of where it stops. You go deeper. You say, I remember the day when I found out that my parents' wedding photographer was a fraud. I was legitimately heartbroken. The photographer not only robbed my parents of their money, but stole their memories and a piece of our history. Their mis- yeah. misfortunes shaped the photographer that I am today, and I vow to provide the best photography experience to each of my clients. I'm committed to delivering images that are timeless and romantic, yet fun and natural, that capture the priceless moments of life. Photographs serve as heirlooms of our most treasured milestones, and the honor of capturing it all is not to be taken for granted. Being a documenter and an image creator is a gift that I don't take lightly. It's about anticipating moments and planning time to create imagery that stands the test of time. Now, what I really want to hone in here on is that that story, you know, because again, there are there are some of the things that you've said in there that we that you may read on other photographers' websites, but you have a story that's unique that ultimately has has motivated your effort as a photographer. And I'm wondering if you can maybe just comment a little bit more on that story. Talk about how that's made such an impact on you as a photographer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that story is so touching. And obviously, I I wasn't around when my parents got married. However, I've always heard this story as growing up as a little girl. And I don't think it really, it didn't really start to impact me until I started to pick up my camera and take photography more serious, right? And so I remember, you know, my dad, he tells the story like, oh, your mom cried for three months straight, you know, about these wedding photos. But my sister got married in 2015. Yes. And I was planning her bridal shower and, you know, pulling uh, pictures from us as a kid and, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I was going through the photos and my parents have very limited photos from their wedding day. And at their wedding day was both their parents were still alive. Right. So my grandparents were there, all of their siblings were there, some that have now passed. 
And so it was just such a such a beautiful moment, right, with the family and things like that. However, the photos that they have are only from friends um, that might have had a camera at that time that, you know, kind of shared some photos with them here and there because their actual hired photographer, he didn't have any film in his camera. Oh, you know, no. he, yeah, he was pretending as if he was taking these photographs and he took my parents' money and ran off and they never heard back from him ever again. Wow. And so as I was going through the um, album for my sisters, getting ready for my sister's wedding, I, I kind of I came across a few images from their wedding day that they got back from a friend of a friend that was there. And, you know, my parents, both of their eyes just filled with tears. Right. They saw their parents there. They saw them in their in their youth, youthful stage of life. And, you know, it, it was just so touching. And I just like I, that 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 emotion that they had, the happiness and the heartbrokenness kind of drives me like. I want to be able to create images for my clients to literally cherish for years. And mm. so when they have kids and their kids are getting ready to be married or, you know, whatever is happening, they can go back to their their images, to their gallery, hopefully to their prints, <laughs> to their album, and just really like remember that day, remember those emotions, maybe remember what their mother had on or remember how nervous or scared they were, but also kind of just remember the amount of love that was in the room. And I never want to be a fraud. Like I never want to be, I just take this job so serious because I see how like heartbroken my parents were by not having their images. And also, also see how they hold on to just like three or, I don't know, they have like three or five pictures, you know, from that day. And they just hold on to those pictures mm. so closely because of who was in that room and, and just the, the emotion and the memories of it all. And it, it just, it's a heartbreaking story, but it also drives me to show up as my best self at every wedding to give my couples the best experience that they can have. And most importantly, to create images with their family, with their new uh, spouse, you know, for them to cherish and really be able to like, it becomes priceless art. It becomes priceless heirlooms down the road. And so that that's my driving story, you know, and it, it's, it's touching, but at the same time, like, I always think back to that. I always think back to that moment and, 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 and completely honored to be in this role, to be a wedding photographer, to get to play this role for my clients and to capture, you know, such a special day. And so, yeah, that, that's my why. Well, and it's, it's powerful and it's particularly powerful because it goes outside of you, right? This is not about, this is not about ego and that like, you're trying to take pictures, pretty pictures that you really love or that'll make you feel better or get you some kind of notoriety from your fellow photographers. This is about something that goes way deeper and and ultimately out when I say outside of you, it's you're you're doing something that's bigger than you. You're taking on this yeah. this challenge that's bigger than you and it's motivated by an extremely emotional experience and and of course ultimately your connection to your parents and wanting to make sure that others don't have that same negative experience. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's powerful. I also think it's really great to differentiate as you have done uh, very well here between the brand position and then the mis- mission statement. Uh, for example, and I'll use uh, my company as an example here. Photographers edit offers custom editing for professional photographers, but our, right. our mission is ultimately to give photographers time, more time for the sake of relationships and more time for the sake of growing their business. And so that's, that's the difference there. In your case, you have a very distinct and clear brand position about 
targeting the, the, and I say targeting, maybe that sounds kind of harsh, but reaching out to the chic and modern creative. And you've very clearly defined who you want as a client. But then the mission behind why you do what you do here is extremely powerful and it's bigger than you. And you know, when, when we're facing creative burnout, having a deep emotional, emotionally driven why behind what we do will help us kind of raise up beyond that or rise up beyond that and continue to push forward even when we may not feel like it in the moment. And so I think that's absolutely extremely poignant. And, and again, you continue to set really wonderful example for all of us. And I appreciate you sharing that as well. You've been in business now for eight years. You've been a photographer for eight years. I'm curious what you have learned that's been particularly significant to you? Like if you had a chance to share one of the most important lessons you've learned as a business owner with a fellow photographer, what comes to mind? Oh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is just education, being like really being willing to invest in yourself, really identifying what you need help with, what you want to learn more about. Because I, like I said, I just wouldn't be here if it wasn't for like education, kind of taking that risk. You know, I had a had an interest and passion in photography, but I took a risk on taking this professional photography course. And then from there, it's like, okay, then I took a digital artistry course, which kind of taught Photoshop. And from there, I, you know, shot a lot of stuff. And then I started to invest in mentor opportunity, mentorships and conferences and workshops that were going to teach me about branding and creating the business and things like that. So education, you know, a lot of times I think that sometimes we try to figure it out on our own and we can end up wasting more time, valuable time trying to figure it out than actually investing in someone to teach us. Right. And Mm. it's 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 just been a very integral part of my growth as a photographer, as a business owner altogether. I'm I always stay a student at the craft and within the business. You know, I never I'm not a know it all. I'm always open to learning more. And I, you know, I I pray to be like that forever just because it's been such a huge, um, you know, part of my success. Well, and you know what, I, and I think I've alluded to this before in the podcast, but I find personally, and this is, I've learned this even more uh, in the last maybe year or so in my, just in my personal life, keeping an open mind, it just makes life all the more interesting. I mean, the, the yeah. idea that we assert ourselves as, like you said, a know-it-all, somebody who just like, like has it all figured out. First of all, it's a turnoff to engage with somebody like that. So that's that's important to keep in mind. But outside yeah, of that, so- you you limit yourself. You know, I think about, well, there's so many different directions we could go with this. But the analogy that comes to mind is, uh, so I worked in the optics industry for for a while. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, that of course, we, we saw quite a bit was somebody who is getting a little bit older who can no longer read without reading glasses. And what's actually happening in that is that your the, the lens or the lenses in your eye begin to kind of solidify. They don't have the flexibility anymore to be able to look closely and then look far away and then look closely again, the flex and adjust and be able to, to be able to see those words clearly. And so you go and buy some type of reading glass or a bifocal or something comparable in order to be able to, to continue to read effectively. The last thing that I, and maybe it's a funny comparison or analogy, but the last thing that I would want to do as a human being, and I love that you said that, that you pray that you continue to be, uh, to, to strive to learn and to keep an open mind, um, to continue to learn. Uh, 
the last thing that I would want to be as an individual is somebody who becomes so rigid that I can no longer flex with whatever is going on in front of me, that, I, that I'm not keeping an open mind, and, and an open mind not just to ideas, but to the fact that somebody else can, can take me to a place that I've never been before, share something with me that I've not learned before. And I think it's really important to, to keep that open mind. I grew up in a very conservative world that was extremely closed-minded, and it was kind of blinders on one way, the only way, black and white. And that affected—it it wasn't just about a spiritual thing. It was, it was just a, a perspective on life in general that was extremely limiting. And mm. that affects the way that you engage with other people— you do end up bringing ego to the picture because it's this idea, well, I've got it, I've got it made, I've got it figured out. And it's, it's just no fun to be on the other side of a person like that and trying to have a relationship with somebody like that. It, it makes it really difficult. So not only for the sake of our businesses, but also just to be better human beings, I, I, I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is to keep not only an open mind, but ultimately to strive to continue to learn, to continue to grow, even if it's just a small thing each day or each week that you're taking in, that you're taking that information in, you're, you're opening your mind to the possibility that maybe you could do something better personally or better as a business owner, and you're making a change and you're making an adjustment, you're continuing to flex rather than hardening up like, the, like those lenses and, and somebody's aging eyes, we're continuing to flex in order to be able to see not only what's down the road, but what's right in front of us as well. And uh, so I think this is another good lesson. This has been full of good lessons already, Ray. You're, you're doing a great job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, it, it's so, that's so true. And I think as a creative, like being flexible is like just so important. A business owner in general, you know, we we have so many different hiccups in the roads or, you know, things that come up at the last minute. It's weddings. When you're shooting weddings, you you have to have plan A, B, and C. And you really have to stay kind of calm within those plans um, and be able to execute in a way that you can produce uh, the type of energy that you want to produce. But also, like for me, it's very important for my clients to just really enjoy their day. So even though I might be like freaking out on the inside or like just really trying to figure out like plan B, plan C, plan D, I have to really stay calm and present it in a manner um, for the client to just trust that I know what I'm doing. Right. And so being flexible. So, so very important. And there's just, it's a huge world. Right. And to, to think that, you know, it all is really limiting yourself because there's so much that we can learn from others that, that, um, you know, our, our brain is a muscle and so it can be stretched and it's just, it's, it's better to be open-minded and to be flexible, to be teachable and, and just kind of take, take what you need and leave the rest type of thing. But yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah. Well, and, and you make a good point there at the end. I'm not suggesting an all, all or nothing approach here. I mean, we can, we, if, if we're clear on our values up front, um, that allows us to filter out what's not relevant to us, certainly both in our business and in our personal lives. But I, I think it's important not only for the sake of growth, for our personal lives, for our business, but ultimately just to, to make life more interesting, to keep an open mind, because there are things out there that, that we're not aware of or that we've not experienced yet. They'll lend perspective that we don't have yet and keeps things fresh. I think it's a, it's a great way to approach life. Talk to us about, speaking of learning, one of the most impactful books that you've had the opportunity to read or listen to. What What is something that comes to mind there? Absolutely. So I love reading. I love... so. I'm not a big TV watcher. I love reading books or listening to books on Audible. And then I also really love podcasts. Okay. So I was thinking about like, what is the most, you know, most impactful business book, but the rise is called the rise of the youpreneur. Okay. And, Oh, who is this book by? 
anyway, it talks about like the, this modern youpreneur shift that's happening in our world. Youpreneur meaning like a solo entrepreneur um, talks about social media strategies, like how to brand yourself, um, your unique proposition. And it, it just was just so helpful for me to read, to understand like strategies and concepts that I'm actually living and knowing how to become comfortable in this brand positioning that I'm, I'm you know, walking in um, and having it feel really authentic to who I am and not trying to be kind of cookie cutter type of thing, um, letting your personality shine in whatever ways are you, unique to you. So that is definitely one book. Oh, it's called, it's by Chris Ducker. Chris Ducker. Yeah, I see that right here. Yep. Rise of the Youpreneur. Um, I also really loved um, Secrets of a Six-Figure Woman. Um, If there's any women on the podcast, I mean, this can really go for men or women. Sure. But that book was super helpful because um, it was kind of like an interview with a lot of different six-figure women in different industries and talking about the challenges that they face as being women and showing up and um, kind of pushing past that, the boundaries of being a woman, you know, yeah. So that was a really great book. Um, I read that a few years ago, but I do remember that being like, just kind of a game changer for me to like show up in the ways that I feel confident in showing up, asking for what I want, being kind of bold and confident in walking in, you know, this purpose, this faith faith walk that I like to call it that I'm doing. And so that was a really, really uh, great, impactful book as well. That's great. We'll link to both of these in the show notes. I think somebody just recently mentioned The Six-Figure Woman, uh, but that first book by, by Chris I hadn't heard of before. We'll link to both of them in the show notes. And for those of you listening in, check these out. I mean, you know, whether you get a physical book or you, you read it on the Kindle or you pop it on Audible, which is a great way to go to, especially if you're in the car driving a lot, great way to take advantage of the time. As much as I get frustrated with traffic, I really have no excuse not to at least take advantage of time in the car and, and listen to an audiobook or even a podcast, as you pointed out, Ray. So check these out and, and take advantage of these resources. Again, we'll link to these in the show notes, bocapodcast.com. You can check out the show notes for this episode and, and uh, others there at bocapodcast.com. Talk to us about your camera bag, Ray. What's If I was to, to ask you what the most unusual item in your camera bag is, and by the way, this doesn't have to be a, a, an unusual camera or lens. It could be something totally random. Is there something in your camera bag that, that enables you to be a better photographer? Oh, you know, that's a really good question. I don't have like unusual, too many unusual <laughs> items. I do have like a prism. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Sometimes I'll break out if I'm trying to do something kind of creative, but I I think my camera bag is very similar to most photographers. Um, I would think I and I, if there's something that's unusual, and I think this is for everybody. I think it would just go to like it would just be my imagination or my creative, mm. my ability to be creative. Yeah. And so before sessions, I like to like pre-visualize shots. Um, maybe poses or just kind of like get my creativity kind of flowing so that when the client is there and they're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know what to do with my feet or whatever. You know, I can really confidently and calmly, again, kind of creating a very calm environment, very natural, fun environment for shooting. But I can kind of walk them through posing and put them in positions that I just kind of thought up or would think that it would be, you know, very flattering for them. And so, yeah, I, I have, that would kind of be my, my thing. Yeah. Well, it is important to have that tool set, that internal tool set to be able to flex with the moment and 
adapt, no matter the situation, no matter the light, the location, the type of client that you're working with. And as you pointed out, to make them feel comfortable, number one, and then ultimately to be able to capture a beautiful image and having the tools necessary to do that internally. I mean, a lot of that comes with practice, also creating awareness through through reading, potentially workshops, a lot of, I mean, as much as Instagram, um, and, and I've been guilty of the same, as much as, as Instagram is is kind of given a hard time, you know, for the way that it, it can, it can waste people's time, photographers time included. There's also a lot of benefit to it in that, uh, there is a lot of visual, shall we call it inspiration, uh, opportunity yeah. <laughs> to learn, learning to develop awareness of composition and, and use of light and, and so forth. So, uh, taking advantage of these resources to develop the tool set necessary to be able to, to provide the best possible experience and final product in the moment, I think is, is really great. But then you also mentioned the prism and it's funny cause we, we just had somebody in the podcast that mentioned a prism as well. So I don't, I, I know this has been something that's, that's become a little bit more popular in the last year or two anyway, but how do you, can you give an example of how you use a prism? Yeah. So I actually bought a new one at WPPI recently, a uh, couple months ago and okay. it has like the three finger hold. And so I forgot the company name. I'm so horrible. I wish I could remember. But so I recently used it during like a branding session and it in DC and it was a, a, a fellow photographer and she was near like cherry blossoms. And so I was like, oh, kind of be cool to like kind of make some art per se with the prism and that type of thing. I'm, it didn't come out the way that I imagined, but I think, <laughs> you know, trying it creatively was really cool and, you know, just kind of pushing yourself. So I'm looking forward to using this, this one a little bit more, but um, a regular prism, I really just kind of create like a mirror, mirror effect kind okay. of sort of, or sure. maybe like even like a little bit of like a, I don't want to say rainbow, but a little color effect within the image at sure. the bottom of the frame. It really just depends on what I'm shooting, who I'm shooting. But yeah, I, I sometimes, if I remember, honestly, I'll break it out and try something creative like that. But again, like, you know, sometimes you're shooting, you're in the moment and you're like, oh man, I forgot to try, you know, use <laughs> Which happens to me often, but it is in my bag. So if I ever like, you know, remember or I feel, you know, inspired by the elements of the scene that I'm shooting, I'll sure. kind of just use it in, in creative ways. That's cool. Well, it is. It's nice to have something extra there to just kind of kick it up a notch a little bit here and there. You know, I mean, the, the reality is, I think a lot of that creative stuff is, I mean, and I'll, I know it's not a, again, this is not a, a, an all or nothing statement. Um, I realize there are exceptions where you know photographers really kind of make a name for themselves and their style by doing things that are truly unique. But the reality is most of the time, 90, probably 5% of clients or even more out there just want a really great experience and some good photography. And as long as we're doing that well and consistently, and, and to our earlier conversation, Ray, about having the tools necessary to be able to flex with the moment, be able to create something good anywhere you're at. Um, I think that's what's yeah. what's ultimately most important. But it is fun to break out something unique. And I've mentioned this multiple times in the podcast now, but I have a, a Russian panoramic camera that I would actually use to, to capture unusual portraits of my clients on the wedding day. And it was something that uh, was really fun to do, something different. I would have an 8x20 print on textured art paper and mounted on foam core and and give that to them as part of uh, of, of the package, if you will. And uh, it was fun to just to do something different. And it kind of challenges you to look at things a little bit differently. We talked about perspective earlier. I mean, perspective matters in life, but it also matters in, in photography. And looking at it in a different format was really cool. Of course, the Prism can do that as well. Yeah. Maybe if, if you think of the company name, we can link to that in the show notes as well. But I, I appreciate you sharing that. Let's, let's jump on to really our primary topic for today. And we have a lot to talk about in this. But 
Um, when when somebody these days refers to a photographic style, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to say unfortunately, but but usually these days they're referring to an editing style. Uh, we're not necessarily talking about a photographic style as much as you know what Lightroom preset just got applied to that image. That's their so-called style. And, and many times they're not actually talking about how they go about capturing the image. And so, the, and of course, the reality is that it all starts with a vision, um, the, the gear, the settings in the camera. So when you started shooting professionally, did you have a particular photographic style that you wanted to take to the world? Or was this something that you developed over time? What did that look like? Yeah, so de- it's definitely something that I developed over time because I believe when I first started um I was shooting everything, Nathan, like literally like baby showers, birthday parties. Um, Like I said, I went to Howard. So I shot Howard homecoming in the club. I'm not even a club girl at all. I literally (laughs) was like really shooting everything. And I think within shooting everything, I really started to identify what I didn't like to shoot. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Or what I didn't feel most creative in right or you know there's some like there were times when I'd show up and I was more so the photo lady like oh hey girl can you take my picture as opposed to being a creative and actually creating a portrait creating an image and so over time I started to kind of say oh yeah I don't want to do that anymore I don't want to do that anymore and I also started to create like mood boards so I would just go through magazines or go through whatever imagery and kind of just pull things that I was drawn to. This was really early on and started, and I really started to pay attention to what light was it? What, you know, cause I think photography is nothing but manipulating light. Mm. So whether you're manipulating natural light or artificial light or still light, you know, that's what photography is. And so I started to pay attention to the light that I was drawn to and then the posing that I was drawn to or the emotion that I was drawn to. And so with that, I started to develop more of my style, more very classic, timeless, romantic and fun. So I, you know, put those words to my style and really started to be able to create environments that were controlled, meaning I could, you know, a certain time of day for a certain type of light, especially for portraits. I like to call portraits like a controlled environment as opposed to candid. You know, sometimes candids happen. It might be a controlled environment, but it might not be. And so when I'm like shooting engagement sessions or a family session or a branding session, I try to control the shooting environment as much as I can so that I can get the outcome of my style of work. Right. And, you know, recently I've been pushing myself um, more creatively to do more off camera flash, maybe in environments that, you know, need a little bit more lighting, but still creating in a way that feels authentic to, to, to me, to my style of work. So it took a while to define my style, you know, maybe two or three years, like really getting comfortable with shooting in manual and understanding, you know, aperture and um, ISO and my gear, right? The glass is so important. Like the, the lenses that you use, um, it's, you know, I don't, you've probably heard this. I'm sure you've heard this. It's like, oh, wow, you have a really great camera, you know? And it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not really about the camera per right. se. It's really about the creator on the other side. And then, you know, your lenses and your settings and just kind of creating this like consistency within the imagery that you are, you're making, especially when it comes to portraits. And so it took a while and it was very much so like a a personal project, a personal journey to really tap into what I'm drawn to. Like, what, what do you, what do you like? You know, everyone has different preferences, preferences and like different types of imagery, but 
for me, for Ray Whitney, like, what do you like? What was the feel and what was the light and all of that kind of stuff. So, well, my, my next question was going to be to ask you what the source of the inspiration was, but I really love what you did here. It's, it wasn't a matter of like going online and searching through, I mean, back, back in the day, it was, we'd pull up photographers' websites and see what we liked. And now, of course, it'd just be jump on Instagram and scroll through photographers' feeds. But it wasn't a matter of going and just looking at other photographers' work as much as it was just shooting a lot yourself, trying all yes. kinds of different things. And through that process, beginning to develop your technique and then figuring out, I, I like what you emphasized earlier, what you didn't like. And you just naturally take that out and say, okay, I don't like this thing. I'm going to focus here. And you do some more of that. And then you take that out if you don't like it and focus over here. And you continue to go through this, almost like culling through a, a session after you shoot, right? Or a wedding. And you're like, I like this, but I don't like this. And what you end up with is a finished product, which represents your your brand, or in this case, your style. And I, I think that we could all stand to do way more of that and way less of comparing our work to other photographers. Because it, Absolutely. That, that way it actually is, it's coming from, I mean, sure, perspective, you know, our, our experience having looked at other photographic work, it's always going to shape what we do. But I think we spend so much time doing that and it skews toward that instead of taking time just to shoot a lot. And, and I mean a lot. And of course, we have the opportunity with digital cameras. It costs us very little money to actually take a bunch of pictures uh, outside of time and just look through those images and figure out what you like and don't like and what adjustments to make and what not to do next time and what to do next time. But focusing way more on just taking lots of pictures. I think this is, I mean, as simplistic as that may sound, I think it's really great advice because like I said, we spend so much time just looking at everybody else's work. Why not try to get creative? Why not look at a, a scene that we're used to photographing and then just turn it upside down and photograph it totally differently? Even if it seems or sounds crazy, do something totally off the wall with the light or the way that you're framing it, the angle that you're standing at, where you're standing. I mean, there's so many different things that, that so many different variables that go into capturing that image. Why not do something different and do a lot of different things and then ultimately land on what, what we like. And I think like we could end the conversation right there and that would be good, practical, actionable advice for all of our listeners. But I wanted to kind of take it further because you did mention too the, the type of, equipment that you're using. So just to add further perspective to this process that, that you've gone through to develop your style, will you just briefly share with our listeners what camera system you're currently using, the bodies, lenses, lights, this type of thing? Absolutely. Yes. So I am a Nikon shooter. I have two D750s and my go-to lenses are the 50 millimeter 1.4 the 85 millimeter 1.4, as well as my 35 millimeter 1.4. So a lot of prime lenses. Yeah. I'm, I'm a prime girl, um, but I also do love my 24 to 7, 24 to 70 2.8. And I also have a macro, the 60 millimeter 2.8 that I'll use for details and some portraits actually because of the bokeh, the, you know, the depth of field yeah. range of that macro. I really do love shooting with that lens as well. So that's typically in my camera bag. Um, I also have a 70 to 200. I use that more so on wedding days than portraits because if I'm looking for like a telephoto, I'll actually put on my 85 and I'll still be able to get, you know, that depth of field and that bokeh range as well. So yeah, I'm, that's what's in my camera bag. 
Well, you know, we talked about the significance of developing photographic vision or style. And, and again, I love the practicality, the actionable, practical advice, which is to figure out what it is that you don't like and focus on what it is that you do love and, and let that drive the development of your, again, we're not talking about editing style here as much as photographic style, how you compose, how you capture an image. But then of course yes. we need the, the equipment in order to capture that. And so in addition to being a Nikon girl, as you say, and I actually shot Nikon my, my career, my whole career too, love the Nikon yes. system, particularly for the ergonomics and the menu layout, but the prime lenses, let, let's talk about why you chose the specific equipment. Actually, before I even get to the Linda's Nikon. Is there a particular reason you went Nikon versus Canon? You know, no, there's not. I, so I think it just was a, the luck of the draw, honestly. I think, <laughs> Fair um, enough. I, yeah, I remember buying my first DSLR camera right out of college, you know, saving up $500, $600 at the time. You were like, this is a lot of money, you know, and I bought it. And so then when I, uh, let's see, so I graduated, I probably took the, the, course in 2011. So I had like three or four years post-college where I was just working corporate America and I had this camera, but it was really cool because when I did take the course, my teacher, he shot Nikon as well. So I was like, okay, I must be onto something. So it was, you know, I think it was a luck of the draw. I love, I love my Nikon. I really do. It's so funny though. I'll see someone shoot Canon and I'm like, I love your Canon, you know, (laughs) but it's just one of those things. They're both great systems. Um, At this point I have everything that I need, thankfully, in my kit. And so to switch a system would be like, I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, that just seems like so much work. But I sure. love I love how my Nikon shoots. I love the colors. I love the dynamic range that it's, I'm able to push within the ISO when I'm shooting in like low light scenarios and things. So yeah, it was just like the luck of the job as well, far as Nikon is concerned. And are you also using Nikon flashes? No, I'm well, I started off using Nikon flashes, the SB 800s, I believe, yeah. 700. However, I've last wedding season, I got introduced to Godax uh, Flashpoint. Yes. Uh-huh. Flashpoint. Yes. So all of my flashes are now um, Flashpoint slash Godox, same system, um, as well as my triggers. And the reason I switched was a few things. So Anytime, you know, if you when you have like a $400 flash and you have multi multi flashes and it hits the ground at a wedding and it breaks, you know, (laughs) it, you know, my heart, this happened to me twice and just hit the ground from the light stand and broke into pieces. And no, that happens, you know, it happens when you're at weddings, people stumble over your stand or whatever. Um, and I, I was just like, no. And the flash point flashes are a lot more, uh, less expensive. And the recycle time is so, it's amazing. Mm. Like it, it was, it's actually a faster recycle time than my S, than my Nikon flashes. Wow. Yeah. So I'm really, really enjoying the whole Flashpoint Godox system altogether. I, like I said, all of my flashes now are Flashpoint and I, I I um, also have the 8200, which is the strobe, the um, Godak strobe that I use when I'm doing my portraits or setting up off-camera flash for my main light within the reception room. So, yeah, they talk to each other. And I mean, even even the strobe is only 300 bucks, which is just, I mean, that, yeah. that's less than what a Nikon speed light would be. And then their speed lights start at 65 bucks and just go up from there. They have at least two different models, it looks like, or three yeah, different models. But- I have the R... I have the R2, so I think that one's like 179. Okay. Um, I think that's the more powerful flash 
of their within that system sure. and they all talk to each other. And so you don't even really need like a trigger receiver system if you're using all of the same, those same flashes, which is really cool. But you can, um, I do use the trigger system so that I can still control um, the flashes and the strobe. So yeah, I mean, you can't beat $179 flash system and $300 strobe. That's um, awesome. You know, and again, the recycle time is amazing. Their battery power is amazing. Um, it's like a rechargeable battery and it stays charged for a very long time. Like I can almost shoot two or two or three weddings and, you know, on the same uh, charge, which is really, really cool. So I'm enjoying it. I did have the Nikon flashes, but I had to, I had to like, Rethink that can just kind of create more freely and also just be more budget conscious. So if things break, yeah. I'm not like losing my, my mind. <laughs> well, I think it's smart and hopefully that'll drive Canon and Nikon to bring the price point down a little bit because it is kind of ridiculous. I mean, you can, you see that a company can make something almost as good for, you know, three, four, $500 less. You're like, uh, okay, what's going on, Nikon? What's going on, Canon? <laughs> but no, absolutely. Speaking of, of budget friendly, though, too, I, I'm looking at your list of prime lenses 51.4, even that lens, killer lens, and yet it only costs about 350 bucks. But is there a particular reason you go primarily for primes? You mentioned the 50, the 85, the 35. Yeah, so um, I really just like the depth of field, the aperture, that I can control the aperture, especially with all of my primes being at 1.4. I typically never shoot at 1.4. However, being able to be um, have that, the ability to, sh- you know, to control that aperture setting, especially in low light and within like golden hour light, you know, it just kind of creates very creamy and buttery light, um, the 1.4 the does. And so, I learned photography off of a a 50 millimeter. And so we, I learned from, if you wanted to zoom, you zoom with your feet. So, (laughs) so there's no distortion within the frame. You know, it's easy. You can easily make with a, you know, with a, uh, 24 to 70 per se, like you can easily make anything fit in the frame, but that doesn't mean that you're not distorting like the actual size of the subject. And so I just kind of learned with the 50 and it's just, I'm a 50 girl, 50 nifty all day. I just love that lens. It is definitely the lens that I start with whenever I start to shoot any portrait or anything. And then from there, I kind of adjust my focal lens. And like I said, I do have two 750s. So I'll typically have like a wider lens and then a, a a more telephoto lens just for composition and framing, that type of thing. So yeah, primes are just amazing. Like the aperture, you're, you're able to control the aperture, which means you can shoot in low light and you can control the depth of field um, of an image. And there, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And that 50 is so, such a good price. Like Nikon, that's, that's a great price. I think the Canon 50, the one, two though, it's like double the price of our Nikon. So at least, yeah. yeah at least, at least. So we're lucky. <laughs> we're lucky that we can get such a great it, even the one eight though the 50 uh, millimeter 1.8 is also a great yeah. lens. like I, that's what I, I that's what I learned off you know the I learned from the one eight and then maybe two years ago I, I got the one four and have 1.4 everything now so well yeah Just, and that one eight only costs something like 100 bucks, 200 or, bucks? yeah, yeah something, 150 right. bucks yeah maybe in that price range and 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 that's a great first lens to go to I mean, you can you could do a capture great portraits. You can photograph most of an event with a 50 if, if you needed to. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility there. And for those of you who are just getting started, these are some great 
recommendations really for gear that you can go to, not break the, the bank, not waste too much money in the process of, of developing your photographic style, and, and of course, ultimately not have to go into debt either, which is really important. You mentioned Aperture a second ago. I, I'm really kind of, I want to dig into this, this photographic style in, in, in a little bit more detail. Are you shooting Aperture priority? Are you shooting shutter priority, manual, some combination of all of the above? Like what is, what is that? What do the settings look like most of the day for you when you're shooting weddings? Yeah, no. So I definitely shoot mainly manual. Um, so I'm really controlling all of my settings um, myself. And so I'll shoot on aperture priority here and there if the light is tricky um, and I'm kind of shooting on the go. Tricky meaning like it maybe you're going from sun to shade to sun to shade. I don't know. It's kind of shifting. But typically at a wedding, it's all manual. Um, I shoot all manual. And so Aperture is so important because it controls the depth of field for an image. It also um, controls like the focal depth, how, you know, how deep you, you are able to focus. So I think about it in terms of if you're shooting like one or two people versus if you're shooting a big party, like a big party of 10. Right. And so um, being able to control your aperture helps to make your images more sharp tack. Um, and then also creates like bokeh and the depth of field, whether you want a shallow depth of field or a deeper depth of field and the ability to shoot in low light. And so I, I truly do believe that as you start to define your style, one of the key ingredients per se in defining your style is really identifying your like go-to aperture because aperture creates a shallow or deeper depth of field you can either have, you know, the background more blur, blurred out or blown out or, you know, and the subject is in focus. Or you can have, like, there's a lot of photographers that will shoot at an F8 or F11 and everything is super sharp, intact. You know, you can see the skyline. You can, you can feel like you can touch everything. And so aperture really defines your style of work. And the more, like, consistent you are with identifying your go-to aperture, the more you can create like consistent imagery within the style. And I'm actually looking at your, your Instagram feed right now. And there's a post from April 12th, the maternity portrait of, is it Dan Trees? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Stunning, stunning. I mean, there's, there are two. And the, the second in particular, a little bit closer up, is just beautiful. She's beautiful. You did a great job capturing her. But then the, the background, the way that it just fades away, this buttery smooth bokeh is, is gorgeous. What lens were you using there? And then what aperture were you using? Absolutely. So I was using my 50 for this and I probably, because I was just shooting her, my go-to aperture is a 2.5 Okay. for when it's just one or two people in the frame, um, somewhere between 2.5, 2.8. But when I look at this picture, definitely at a 2.5. I like that you point out 2.5 because you're, you're shooting with an, a lens that can go even more shallow in its depth of field. Yeah. Yet you've chosen not to do that. Yet that's kind of the trend right now. So talk to us a little bit about what you're thinking, the thought process behind choosing to, to go 2.5, 2.8 instead of 1.4. Yeah. So I like um, when I'm shooting just one person, I want both of their eyes and their all, everything in their face to be in focus. Unless I'm purposefully shooting the subject in a way that I only want what's closest to the camera in focus, right? And so that's when I would maybe drop my aperture to a 2.2 or F2. I Again, I rarely shoot at a 1.4 just because you lose the depth of focal, of the focal point, you know? And so I like the, I like the subject's face and their features to be 
in focus, you know, in focus. I want both of their eyes in focus. I want, you know, part of it, their body and all of that in focus and the background to be a little bit more shallow yeah. and kind of creamy, that type of thing. And so, but I think this portrait of, of Dan Treese is a great example though, of how you found a good, a great balance because there, again, there's this, this trend and has been, I guess for a while now to, to shoot at these, these wide open apertures. And I can only imagine how much time these photographers are spending in post-production or at least in the culling process anyway, going through and picking the ones that are sharp enough and those that aren't sharp enough. And they're spending so much extra time just having to, to cull through the stuff that's not tack sharp or even close to tack sharp because they're shooting wide open just because that's the thing to do. This is a yeah. great, and again, I'm looking at the second image in the, in the series of Dan Treese there in particular. It's just a great example of how, as you pointed out, both her eyes are sharp, or her body is sharp, her hair is sharp. And, and yet it just, the, the background is just so beautifully blown out, um, with that relatively shallow depth of field still. It's a nice kind of best of both worlds scenario. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that's it. I, I, she, this was during the cherry blossom in DC yeah. and there were so many people around us. And so I wanted to put, position her in a way that it kind of felt like no one else was there, but also still pick up those like really pretty petals that were on the floor. And that's the, the water in the background. And I kind of purposely placed her near a cherry blossom, like her head near a cherry blossom. So that was also in focus a bit. So you could kind of tell that this is, you know, we were at the cherry blossoms, but well, those and those cherry blossoms that are in focus almost they, they kind of frame her in a way, particularly yes. the, the first in the series, because you do you have the trees under the background that are blurred out, but the, the ones that are closer to her are sharp. And so they kind of frame her. And I think it's it's really beautifully done. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. Of course. Well, but let's talk about shutter speed, too. And, and the thing that comes to mind here and almost laughingly so really, I think back to the way that I used to use shutter speed, particularly when it came to use using on-camera light or off-camera light during a reception, um, I had a tendency, at least for a good bit of time, to drag the shutter. Like I would shoot at a fifteenth of a second um, and, oh, wow. and shoot with like rear rear curtain sync. So I'd have that the camera would pop on the back end of of the, the shutter being open, and it was cool because it would you you create some movement, even intentionally. So I'd even move the camera, you create some movement and then it would freeze the the subject at the end. It was a cool yeah. look, but it was one of those things that I, I, I got so excited about it. Then I just did it way too much. Like I didn't add enough variety, but how do you choose to use shutter speed, particularly when it comes to using lights or off camera lights through a wedding day? Yeah. So such a good question. When I'm, when I'm using like off camera light, I, know that I can drop my shutter a little bit slower than normal. So maybe like 180th or 160th of a second in order to pick up ambient light. And also the flash kind of freezes the frame. And so if there is a low light scenario, um, if I'm shooting in low light and I still want to pick up maybe the ambient uplighting in the room or candlelight or something like that, I'll typically, I will slow my shutter speed down, especially if I'm shooting like details or shooting a room where nothing is really moving right? Like the subjects aren't moving. Um, I am, unless I'm purposely putting movement in an image and I'm kind of creatively trying that these days, I typically like things to be more sharp, okay. right? And so um, my shutter, I, if, I like to kind of keep it no lower than one one hundredth of a second or one one twenty fifth or, you know, obviously with flash, you can't go higher than one two hundredth. But 
So I, I like I like a faster shutter speed just so that things are kind of tacked sharp. But again, I'm also I am paying attention to the ambient light as well as, you know, my off camera flash and the power of the flash so that I don't blow out the highlights or anything like that. And so it's a very fine balance with um, shutter speed. To me, I think shutter speed is one of the last settings that you kind of control the exposure of a frame. And so the first thing I do is I set my ISO whenever I'm shooting, whether it's off camera flash or natural light, the first thing I do is like, okay, what is my ISO in this, in this, in this picture? And a lot of times when I'm outdoors, I will shoot at a 400 ISO, 500 ISO, just so that my shutter speed can be faster okay. and that I can, you know, really freeze the frame. And, you know, also when I'm shooting at a two five, so that everything, the subject is in focus, right? So a faster shutter speed, a 2.5 aperture and ISO, like, you know, 400 or something, unless it's super, super bright and I'm shooting in complete, like sunny, sunny skies. I, you know, in, in those type of scenarios, I will uh, have, have a lower ISO, like 100 ISO or a low one um, and have a really fast shutter speed so that I'm getting the blue sky and the white clouds. Um, so the shutter speed could be like one four thousandth or something, you know, just so again, that's super, super sunny light, you know, I'll have to fasten up that shutter speed. So really, honestly, shutter speed's like that last, sometimes I look at it as an equation that goes to show how like math, I'm like <laughs> such, a math such a math person. So it's really like that last part of the equation that I plug in. Right. And so I'll know what my aperture, I know around what I want my aperture to be, depending on if I'm shooting one or two people or if I'm shooting a larger group of people. I'll know what my ISO is going to be because I've already kind of metered for the light, whether it's off camera flash or natural light or ambient light. Right. And so the shutter speed is like that last piece that I plug in to expose for the frame. So I kind of play around with it a little bit um, and, you know, shooting in manual, it just kind of helps me be able to do that. And, but like I said, I typically like a faster shutter. I like things to be kind of sharp as tech sharp as possible, unless I'm purposely blowing something out, um, meaning making it blurry or making um, the focus on another portion within, in, within the frame. So yeah, that's, that's how, that's my typical go-to. Like I said, I am trying a little bit more movement, a little bit more fluidity within the shutter speed. Once I get my classic timeless shots, and then I'll go to the creative side and do some fun stuff, that type of thing. When you have a number of questions here, first of all, I, I, you mentioned depth of field for group shots. Just very quickly, what aperture do you normally go to with the group shots? You've mentioned two, five, two, three, two, five in that realm for individual or a couple. What about group shots? Yeah, so for group shots, I typically will start at a 3.5, f4, somewhere between that. Depends on how big of a group shot it is. Like right. if it's just a bridal party and it's like um, they're typically like in one line, right? Or uh, maybe a couple layers, then I'll, I'm at an f4, maybe an f5.6. More than likely, I'm somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4, though. That is my like go to for group shots. Okay. But if it's like a huge, like, you know, I'm taking a picture of everyone at the wedding, you know, it's like 100 people. Um, I will go to a 5.6 or a 6.3. But then with that aperture, then I already know that I probably will adjust the ISO up a bit because you are closing down on the uh, light that's coming into the frame in order to get like the deeper 
focal distance uh, with the aperture, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's my go-to when it comes to groups. To groups. I try to, yeah. Okay. So if it, then take us inside, because I actually have a picture in front of me here again on your Instagram feed from back on January 13th. It looks like it was a wedding and, and there's a shout out to the ladies of Delta Sigma, but it's, it's an indoor, what looks like a reception image. And the, the couple in front of the camera are lit really, really nicely, but you also have really great ambient light. I mean, you, you still get the kind of the feeling, the mood for the image, and yet the subjects in the background are also lit really well. So what kind of shutter speed would you be using there? What ISO would you be shooting at? And then how would the light be set up in that scenario? Yes. Yeah, so, um, yes, this was a wedding in Houston and I had an off camera flash off to camera, right? About 45 degrees to camera, right? It did have a magma grid on okay. it. Cool. That was lighting the couple, specifically lighting them in the middle of the floor. And because of, you see, like the uh, bulbs and, and the chandelier in the back and the girls and things like that, more than likely, I was probably shooting somewhere between ISO. I'm, I'm taking a shot in the dark at this, but somewhere between like 1,000 to 1,600 okay. um, with the shutter. That probably was an F4. It had to be a higher aperture because the 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 couple is not blown out. They're right. lit very well. So I had to have a close down on my aperture a bit so that the light is more even with that grid. And the shutter probably was like one eightieth of a second. I wanna double check that when we get off of this. I'm gonna <laughs> check the metadata on that. But that would that's what I would guess. That gives me a good idea though, and I think for our listeners too. And by the way, if, if you're listening along in the conversation and you want to see what we're talking about, if you just go to, to Instagram.com slash Ray, R-H-E-A-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, Ray Whitney yeah. on Instagram and uh, the January 13th post, you can see what we're talking about here. But I, it's nice to have, like, it makes it way more practical to actually have a visual reference for what we're talking about. For those of you listening in, you can kind of check this out as well. But I, I really appreciate, you know, I, the thing the thing that I hear as you're talking about this, there's such specificity that it, it feels intentional. Um, I mean, I even think back yeah. to when I was shooting, I was shooting Aperture Priority much of the time. And I did that for the sake of simplicity. You talked about going in and out of difficult lighting situations, which frankly was was quite the reality for, for me shooting in the, the Chattanooga, Tennessee market. We had, we had some pretty rough light to work with, and in some cases, pretty rough locations to work with. But the the simplicity of that for me, I just loved it. I didn't want to have to constantly think about changing settings. So major props to you again for, and in this case, for being able to shoot manual so much of the time, because to, to constantly be thinking about that in addition to everything else that's going on takes a lot. But I, I like the, it seems like a lot of intention behind why you do what you do versus just kind of, you know, point and shoot, which um, yeah. you, you end up with sometimes if you're shooting aperture priority or shutter priority or just program mode. And um, I, I like that. I have a lot of respect for that. But it goes back to show, I mean, when we're talking about this idea of developing a photographic style, again, I have to emphasize here, we're talking about actual photographic style, not editing style, but actual photographic style. Yes. How do I want to go about shooting an image? What type of image am I trying to create? And then in order to create that particular image, what equipment do I need, A, and then B, what are the settings that I need to to put into that equipment in order to get this final look that I'm going for? And maybe just to, to sum up everything for us, right? Will you comment just briefly? You, you've talked multiple times about the significance of that that classic look, um, something that yeah. will that will last for a long time that isn't so trendy that they're going to look at it in a year or two years or five years and and they're going to be like, what what in the world was my photographer thinking? What was what was the thought process behind that versus anything else? I mean, there's a lot of beautiful creative work out there, but at the end of the day, 
a classic portrait or even just a classic image of you know the bride and her father together interacting where you see raw emotion and you just get to be part of the scene versus trying to figure out what angle the photographer was shooting this image at. What What's the thought process behind the focus on the classic image? Yeah, I, you know, I really think it's just really driven by my, my, my parents' story, right? And their lack of those classic images mm. of them and on their day with maybe their, their siblings and their parents and things like that. And I also am just really drawn to classic portraits. Okay. Like, again, when I started to pull that mood board and really pay attention to what I really liked, it's just that classic picture um, where it's really the focus is the couple, the subject, the background plays an important role, but we're really not, that's not where my eyes go. My eyes go directly to the subject and just really showcasing you know, putting their hands and their feet, putting everything in the picture. I'm really big about that. Like I typically will start with a classic full body, you know, everything is in uh, the scene. I've picked the scene, I've picked the light and things like that so that I can create just something that's classic, something that I think about that can go on your wall or you could show your kids or, you know, whomever 10 years from now and you'll still look at it and be like, oh, wow, that is beautiful. Like, look, you know, and so I'm really drawn to that. Um, and it just really and then from there, if I want to get creative, I'll get creative. But I think it, it's so important to get those classic timeless, priceless pictures that you can. And, and then, you know, editing is very important as well. I typically edit very true to color, true to the ambiance of the room. Like I'm not too like moody or I'm not really too blown out or anything like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just my style of work. I like very true to color um, things. And when I am shooting classic, I do like to incorporate some texture or some color in there, but not put too many like distracting elements in the frame. And so just being purposeful about the shots that you're getting, what you're shooting, how to frame it, how to compose it, and how to, like, in a way for when someone looks at the picture that their eye is, like, naturally drawn to the subject that you're shooting. Like, I like that. Um, it, that That's just, like, what I'm drawn to. So it's important for me to get those classic shots and to really put people in that, like, really complimentary light and get your hands and your feet and all of those things in the shot, put a little crop room just in case you do want to blow it up or things like that. And so that's just what I'm naturally drawn to. And that's like my go-to. And then from there, we'll have like fun and do creative things um, that fit within my realm of my style, you know? And so, yeah, that's, the, I'm just, I'm just naturally drawn to that. Like thinking about those portraits that can live on the wall, that could tell a story without you even having to see much more of any, any image or anything like that. But, but you mentioned the word purpose earlier, and I think this beautifully brings us kind of full circle to the, the first part of our conversation, talking about why you even do what you do. I like the fact that your photographic style is driven by purpose. It's driven by a why. It's not just kind of you know flailing in the wind, following whatever the trend is at the moment—the dark and moody, or the light and airy, or you know this particular angle, or that thing, or this Photoshop action, or Lightroom preset, or whatever it is. You actually have reason behind why you're doing what you're doing. I like the intentionality behind that. I think it's a really wonderful example for our listeners. And for that and many other reasons, I, I can't thank you enough for making time for the Boca podcast today. Maybe just in closing, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners one more time where they can find you online, where they can follow what you're doing, and, and also learn more about your education stuff as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, first, Nathan, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. This was 
such a good conversation and um, I'm happy to be a part of the Boca podcast community. So cool. So um, yes, you can find me online at um, on Instagram, Instagram.com backslash Ray Whitney. And that's spelled R-H-E-A-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y. Um, on Facebook, Ray Whitney Photography. Um, I'm on there. And um, my website is RayWhitney.com. Like you mentioned, I do have my photography education platform. It is called Photobomb Academy. So please connect with me on there and let me know that you found me via the Boca podcast. I'd love that. Um, Photobomb Academy is spelled exactly how it sounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And I have a digital course that I'm actually launching. So I've been working really, really hard on it. It's called From Hobbyist to Pro. And it is a course around building a solid business foundation for rising photographers that want to go from hobbyist to pro. Love it. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about that. And a lot of other offerings that's coming down the pipeline with the Academy. And I just really love connecting with photographers and creatives and really helping people grow the business that they dream of. I think it's, it's so, it's so cool. It's such an honor. So thank you again for having me. And I'm looking forward to connecting with, with those that want to learn and um, kind of just inspire each other. Awesome. Well, we, we are going to link to all of these in the show notes for those of you listening in. Go check out Boca, B-O-K-E-H, podcast.com for the easy links to all the resources that Ray just mentioned that we discussed during our podcast today. And uh, we'll talk to everyone more soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Boca podcast today. Will you let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or maybe in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast, maybe suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My direct email is nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca Podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. <laughs>